remember looking at that test and thinking, this is an invitation. This is from God. This is... Wow. And I just remember being so grateful that God had such low expectations for people, you know, that God would look at me on the bathroom floor Mm. and choose one of the lowest moments in my life to offer me the most beautiful gift I've ever had. Um, I just, I have always believed in the God of the bathroom floor. Brothers and sisters, my name is Kirk Franklin, and I come to give you good words. Let's go. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so excited to be talking to this incredible woman here today. She's experienced so many mountains and valleys in her life, struggles with bulimia, with alcoholism, with depression. But with her strong and daring faith, she stood tall through it all. She's a mother. She's a successful author with three New York Times bestsellers, an activist helping women, children, and families around the world with her organization Together Rising. She's one of the most honest, open, insightful human beings that I've had a chance to talk with, y'all. I'm so honored to have this pint-sized dynamo on the show. Please welcome to Good Words, author of Untamed, founder of Together Rising, Miss Glennon Doyle. Kirk, thank you for having me. Thank you for trusting me with this sacred space of yours. I'm really, really grateful to be here. Now, do you have any idea of who I am and the music I do? Like, have you listened to any of my music? I do. Really? Yes, I sure do. And my whole little team was so excited that I was going to be serious? on this. Absolutely. You're trying to make a black man blush. That's what you're trying to do. <laughs> and I'm not going to let you do it, but just because my melanin is not going to be able to get the kind of blush that my other brothers and sisters get, so I'm not going to let you see that. <laughs> but I want to know, I want to know more thing. where are you from? I grew up in D.C., right outside of Washington, D.C. I live in Florida right now, and I'm moving to California. So kind of been all over serious? the place. I am, yeah. You are the only person I've met that's moving to California. Everybody else is moving out of California. You're exactly right. And and it's just, I never, the things, the decisions that I make rarely make sense on paper, but I feel them. And when I feel it and I do it, it works out in the end. So even though everyone, usually when I decide something and everyone tells me I'm crazy, that's when I know I'm onto something. So now, were you raised in church? Did you grow up in church as a kid? Talk to me. Okay, so I was raised Catholic, and I really remember us being more just kind of culturally Catholic than anything else. We just went to things. You know, I went to church. I went to CCD, but I don't remember a lot of talk at home about the church or about God. I think our religion in our house was mostly football. That's my dad was a football coach. <laughs> Got you. <laughs> and instead of scripture, I remember a lot of like— you know, I'd have my heart broken and, and my dad would say, you know, no guts, no glory. Or like, <laughs> oh my gosh. it's time for a Hail Mary pass. <laughs> Everything was a football analogy. <laughs> From the book of the Cowboys. That's and- right. 
Chapter right. Steelers verse, yeah, uh, Redskins. I get you. But you know, that's a beautiful thing. They're not even the Redskins anymore. So we've seen so many things change all over the world. Now, as I want to know, where were you when you first got the call that your first book hit the New York Times list? Like, were you at the crib? Were you in bed? Where were you at when you got that call? I was in a car with a friend was driving and my sister was in this car with me. And um, my sister and I have been through it all together. So I became an addict really young. I was 10 years old when I came bulimic and I was lost to addiction for 16 years after that. And my sister and I were absolutely inseparable as kids. And then the worse my addiction got, the further we had to be apart from each other because she was really protecting herself from me. So when I got sober at 25, and we kind of got the miracle of sobriety, which helped us heal our relationship. We became inseparable again. And so she left her job. She left, she was a corporate lawyer. She left her job. She went to Rwanda wow. to wow. prosecute child sex offenders and to fight for um, widows whose land was taken from them. Wow. No questions asked. Wow. And she did that for a while. And so I was on my own in the beginning of sobriety because she left to do that. And when she came home from that, we started working together and did everything together. So she just, before she left for Rwanda, Kirk, she she gave me, I didn't, I didn't have a laptop. I didn't have, I was a teacher and I just, we were just really, um, you know, we were just doing the best we could and, and we didn't have a lot of extra. And so I wanted to write, but I didn't have a computer. So before she left for Rwanda, she saved up and brought me a laptop and she said, okay, I'm going to do, I'm, I, I've been called there. I'm going to go do that. Your calling is to stay here, raise your babies, and write. Mm. To use that voice that God gave you. You're going to write every single day that I'm gone. Mm. Um, and so that's why I started writing, because my sister told me to. <laughs> so to answer your question, years later, when we found out that the book that I had started writing when she left had hit the New York Times list, we, I remember telling my friend to pull over, and my sister and I jumped out of the car, and we just hugged and danced in a parking lot. Um, wow. That was a good moment. Wow. Well, listen, man, I'm quite sure that that was a dope dance. I can only imagine <laughs> how y'all got out and parted from that noise. That's, that is beautiful. Man, your sister sounds like a superhero, man. That's that's crazy. She is. That is beautiful. Yeah, no, she sounds like a living superhero. So now, as I got to go back to the whole being raised Catholic, I would have never known with all this charisma and, and juice that you have, you were raised Catholic. And I've been to Catholic <laughs> church. I know it's a lot of standing and sitting, a lot of standing and kneeling, you know what I'm saying? You know, a lot of cardio. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You get a lot of <laughs> calisthenics. You know, yeah. uh, what was for you this transition into faith yeah. and to that whole community coming from a Catholic background. Well, I don't, what I will tell you, Kirk, is that the truth of the matter is that I don't ever think I've ever really fit into any religion, but I have had this ridiculous, fierce faith for as long as I can remember being alive. I mean, I just have always, even when I was real, really sick, even when I, you know, the nights when I had just drank way too much and I was so sick and lost and I still would sit in my backyard and just look up and just talk to God. And I never felt like God was mad at me. I, I just felt like God was kind of just waiting for me to get started, mm. you know, just like mm. patiently um, waiting. But there was something about that. I, I, I became sober the day after I found out I was pregnant. Mm. 
So I was 26. I had been lost to addiction for 16 years. And I found myself sitting on a bathroom floor holding a positive pregnancy test. And I, I mean, Kirk, there could have been no worst candidate for motherhood on the earth. I I was so sick. I had burned every bridge in my life. I had nothing. And still something about, I just, I remember looking at that test and thinking, this is an invitation. This is from God. This is, wow. and I just remember being so grateful that God had such low expectations for people, you know, that God would look at me on the bathroom floor Mm. And choose one of the lowest moments in my life to offer me the most beautiful gift I've ever had. Um, I just, I have always believed in the God of the bathroom floor. You know, the one that yeah. just looks down at us. That's dope. Amen. Yeah. Amen. That is so dope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this real pretty picture uh, that we have of this heavenly father that that doesn't get his hands dirty with us is a... It's a missed opportunity, isn't it? You know yeah. what I mean? I really think it is. And to hear you paint, first of all, I can't believe that Glennon Doyle is saying my name, uh, that, that she and I own like first name basis. Like <laughs> every time course. you say Kirk, I'm like, yo, she know me. <laughs> you know, I just want people to know that you know, that you know who Kirk is. I that, feel that, the that's same very way. humbling. I feel the no, same way. No, come on, man. Listen, this fluidity in you. Now, we have to talk about this, just this, this ease that you go in and out of your story. And I know that while God was writing your story on the bathroom floor, there couldn't have been that same level of ease while you were going through this bulimia as a young eight-year-old girl. There couldn't have been that ease while you were dealing with alcoholism and addiction. So listen, I just got to ask you, what is it about you that makes honesty flow so fluid out of you like that? What happened to the fear of embarrassment Mm. and being judged? Well, I had so many secrets for so long. I mean, when you become sick early and um, I I just had so much to hide. I I had two lives. You know, I had the life where I went to school and I tried to act normal and I smiled and I uh, said all the things I was supposed to say and did the things that I was supposed to do. And then for years and years and years, I had a secret life where I um, binged and purged, or I overdrank, or I just beat myself up in a million different ways. And so the first time I went to an AA meeting, actually, the first time I went to a recovery meeting, I remember walking into the room and it was in a church, of course, um, in the basement of a church. And I remember sitting down in that circle with all those, you know, ragamuffin looking people. <laughs> mm. And they started speaking. And I thought... Just a whole bunch of angels, right? A whole bunch of little angels. I just thought, oh, this is where they keep the honest people. Yeah, man. Come on, man. Come on. This is where they keep the honest people. And I just... The first person opened their mouth. And and for the first time, I heard people telling the truth, right? People telling the truth about how hard life is and how busted up and beautiful we all are. And and, and I just remember thinking, okay, if if I can do it this way... If I can do life this way, if I can be as honest as these people, if I can have no secrets, if I can have no shame, then maybe I can do life. Man, wow. And so I learned it there, Kirk. That's where I learned that the only way to do life is is without shame. There's nothing to be ashamed of because there's nothing that I've done or thought of or felt that a million people haven't done or thought or felt before Yeah, me, man. Right? There's yeah. nothing under the sun that can keep us from connection and love. And so I just, it's a, it's a spiritual shamelessness is my 
most important spiritual practice, refusing to be ashamed. Oh, beautiful broken souls we are. So listen, I want to ask you this because as an African-American man, I have come from so many communities where dysfunctional families or absent fathers or mothers, it's just really the norm. I mean, when you see a black home when I was coming up that had the same mom and daddy, you know, it looked like a unicorn. And there's a perspective or the perception that people that come from homes that have moms and dads don't get into the type of vices that you fell into. Mm. It's always like you hear those stories from people that come from these broken places or from these fragmented worlds. What advice can you give parents right now just to look out for if they have children? Like, did your mom or dad see any signs of this before it hit you this hard? How can you help me maybe help some parents to know what to look for with a child that may even be close to suffering from these things? Yeah. Well, so much. I have so many thoughts about that. I mean, the first is we don't love each other out of mental illness, right? I mean, Mm. alcohol and food were not my problems. They were my very ineffective solution to my problems. Mm. My problems were clinical depression and anxiety, mm. right? So mm. my, that this was always going to be my path. This is how my brain was wired. This is, I didn't have, you know, some of the skills and resources that I needed as a kid to deal with being a little bit mentally different, right? And mm-hmm. being extremely mm-hmm. sensitive and and, and by the way, for people who have kids who, you know, tend towards depression or are extremely sensitive, what I want to say to those people is there are, my favorite people in the world are people who have different, uh, who, have, who are mentally different and who have deep sensitivity. Mm-hmm. The first part of life is often very difficult for people like me, and it was, but the next part of life is often more beautiful than anybody else's, right? People like me who, or people who have been through the fire, yeah. And come out the other side are the most beautiful people on earth, preach, right? So preach. for parents who are raising kids who are struggling a little bit, what I would tell them is, listen, I wouldn't change it for the world. The sensitivity that led me into addiction is also the same sensitivity that I use now that makes me a really good artist. Yeah, man. Right? Every weakness that I've ever had turned out to be a strength. It's just, you just, we have to figure out how to use our fire to light up the world instead of burn ourselves up. And that sometimes takes a few decades, right? Yeah. And then the other thing is, you know, you're talking about a certain kind of brokenness that you witness in your community. I witness the same kind of brokenness. Um, In mine, it just looks different, right? There's so many families who are broken, 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 but are still together. Yeah. On the outside, look like a nuclear family that is all, you know, the picture we're, we're sold as perfection. And it's not at all. There's all kinds of brokenness in those families. And I was from a family with, you know, a great mom and a great dad. Kirk, my mother was a guidance counselor for children. Wow. And I was suffering. Wow. All right. My dad was a high school football coach and a teacher. Like, sometimes our paths are our paths and we can't save our children from life. And sometimes the pain that they go through is the exact pain that God has for them that's going to turn them into warriors. So I don't know if we can always save our kids from life. We can just kind of walk it with them. You know, we can just keep pointing them towards the fire so that they 
don't become fire avoiders, but so they learn that they're fireproof. That's what I want for my kids. I want them to know that nothing will take them out, that they can handle all the pain of life because they're fireproof. More from the fireproof Glennon Doyle when Good Words returns from the break. So, any given morning, someone from my team is hitting me at the crack of dawn, updating me on something. And if you're like me, some mornings you wake up feeling ready to pull the covers over your head and go back to sleep. There's no judgment for me, but let's make having the most comfortable sheets the reason why. Don't love your sheets? Brooklinen has you covered. And they are affordable, y'all. Affordable. Started by Rich and Vicky, a couple of beautiful souls who wanted home essentials that didn't cost an arm and a leg, but when they were not able to find what they were looking for, they founded Brooklinen and as the first direct-to-consumer bedding company. They work directly with manufacturers to make luxury available directly to you without the luxury level markups. Brooklinen has a variety of sheets, colors, patterns, and materials to fit your needs and tastes. Brooklinen has over 50,000 five-star reviews and counting. If you don't love their products, they even offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. And Brooklinen is so much more than sheets. They've got comforters, pillows, towels, even loungewear, and more. Go to brooklinen.com and use promo code Kirk to get $25 off when you spend 100 bucks or more, plus free shipping. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com and enter your promo code Kirk and get $25 off when you spend $100 or more, plus free shipping. brooklinen.com and use promo code Kirk at checkout. Let's go. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You and I are twins. Mm. I am sold on the fact that you are my, you are my twin. You are my twin. Mm. I, I have struggled deep with addictions. I have struggled, continue to struggle deep at times with depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. and I've seen it walk out. I am an extremely sensitive individual, and I have seen it play out in the music that's created and the stories that are told. Mm-hmm. And I, I can amen everything you're saying that. You and I walk emotionally through really deep waters. And a lot of people don't understand that the smile has so much of a cost. Mm -hmm. That there was a big price for the smile that you have, my beautiful sister. And I am honored to be able to meet my my twin. I've been searching for you for years. I've been as as I heard you were out there and I found (laughs) I found my twin. So so that means that we gotta hook up. You gotta invite me now to the barbecue. I love it. I will, I will. (laughs) Listen, 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 you know. I have always said that you heal as you reveal. Mm. And ah uh, yes. And have always said that the doctor can only fix what you confess, right? Yeah. See, it's like when you go to the doctor's office, he doesn't just start throwing a bunch of pills at you. Mm-hmm. He asks you, where does it hurt? 
That means you have to participate in your own recovery. And it's beautiful to hear you talk about this, just this process and this journey. I have spent my life in the arts like you. Mm-hmm. And I have so many friends that I came up with and we didn't have the language for it back then, but so many young boys and girls that were, you know, now part of this LGBTQIA plus community. Mm-hmm. And they were so close friends of mine that even at times as a kid, I was labeled gay myself and have learned to show compassion and to be able to walk out life with people. I would hear the homophobic statements in church and the very evil and hurtful sermons at times that were just embarrassing to these young men that were talented. And one thing that I've learned is that no one community is monolithic. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have all black people that think the same, not all gay people think the same, not all Christians think the same. Unfortunately, you know, you've got some Christians that... Uh, they have more conviction for abortion than they do social injustice. That's right. And so I just want to ask you a question. How can we, especially with all of the ugliness we've seen at the beginning of this year in D.C. and just this continued polarization of our country, Mm. how can we get to a place where we live in a country that, first, I feel we got to stop calling it a Christian country because, yeah, there may have been some forefathers, there may have had some Christian ideals, But a lot of that was weaponized against certain groups of people. So my question to you is, how can we live in this one country and allow people to have different thoughts, convictions, (laughs) and views, but we respect each other without labeling hateful titles to one another? Yeah, God. Um, Well, I mean, I would say this. I do think that, um, like you said before, in our personal lives— that we heal when we reveal, right? Um, I think that there's just a lot right now that is being revealed about our nation, right? That that we cannot get to um, peace. We cannot get to reconciliation until we have justice first, right? Mm. That we cannot get to the resurrection without the crucifixion, right? Mm. Everybody wants love and light and unity. Well, we can't have that until we have reckoning, until we mm. listen to people who are in pain and have been in pain for a long time. And, you know, until we really look hard at the original sin of this country, mm. right? Which isn't, has always been racism. Mm-hmm. And so what I do know is that there is no revolution until there's revelation. And I think that this time in our country's life is a time of revelation. And more people than ever before, people who I never thought would look hard at racism finally are. Um, yeah. And yeah. so what looks like pain and chaos right now looks a little bit to me like the first signs of hope, right? Because we cannot heal what we do not acknowledge. And most of the activists, you know, a lot of people, 2020, it's a dumpster fire and all that. But a lot of the activists I work with are hopeful for the first time because they've been saying this forever. You know, none of this is new. We all know none of it's new. Mm. The fact that we are all finally being forced to look at the inevitable results of centuries of racism is a, is a hopeful thing. It's a good thing. It should be painful. It should be painful for those of us who have um, benefited from white supremacy for as long as we have. 
Um, so, you know, I'll tell you this and I assume that you feel the same way since we're twins. <laughs> yeah, twin. No matter how this works out, we cannot allow for anyone on any side to use Jesus's name as a shield for hatred, right? It, Amen. it was used. Amen. It was used to, um, to allow for and continue slavery, right? Those were Amen. Bible verses being thrown around forever about slaves and masters. Amen. And, and you know what people said back then? Well, it's not me. It's just the Bible. I'm just reading the Bible, right? Amen. The same, Amen. The same arguments are being used against our LGBTQ um, sisters and brothers. And if we want to be on the right side of history, we, you know, we all look back and say, I never would have used scripture to keep any minority in chains. We have to always insist that going forward, that we will never use Jesus's name to oppress or marginalize any of his people, right? We will only use it to free. We will only use Jesus's name to free. And when we're talking hate, when we're talking division in any way, we will at least leave Jesus's name out of it because we know that mm -hmm. Jesus always, you know, if we had any lesson from his life. It was that Jesus walked on the earth and asked two questions. He asked, who is power forgetting and who is religion oppressing? And then he gathered up those people one at a time. And back then they were lepers and they were prostitutes and they were tax collectors. But if we're living like Jesus now, then we're just walking around saying, who is power forgetting? Who is religion oppressing? And then we're gathering with them and we're walking with them and we're walking straight toward the empire, right? Like he did. So um, I don't know. Kirk, I just know that <laughs> that I won't stand for Jesus's name to be used in any way that hurts. Listen, I am talking to a woke white woman <laughs> right now. I'm talking to a woke five two white woman <laughs> with um, with biceps that'll knock you out, and she's knocking us out with this conversation. I want to know what was this transformation for you when you just became woke about the issues of your black and brown brothers and sisters? Well, I'll tell you an embarrassing story, which is that I was sitting on my couch with my two daughters, one on either side of me, um, years and years and years ago. And we were looking at a, a picture of one of the civil rights marches. Um, and one of my little girls pointed toward a white woman in, in the middle of the march. And she, her eyes got wide and she looked at me and she said, Mommy, look, would we have been marching with them? And Kirk, I almost, I fixed my mouth to say, yes, of course we would have. But before I could say it, my older daughter said, oh no, we wouldn't have been marching with them then. I mean, we're not marching with them now. Wow. Wow. And that is the moment that I realized that I was not the kind of woman that I thought I was, right? That, that, that I imagined myself to be the kind of woman who would have been marching with Martin Luther King Jr. based on nothing, right? Based on the fact that I was, what, a nice lady? And I started reading everything I could get my hands on, and I came across oh, wow. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letters from the Birmingham jail, and I'll never forget reading the sentence that said, the greatest stumbling block to freedom is not the Ku Klux Klan men. It's the white moderate. So I... Uh, I just, that, you know, that's the first time I had language for who I had allowed myself to become, which was a white moderate, you know, who just kind of mm. stayed home and assumed myself to be on the side of civil rights just because I was nice, I guess. So I just decided at mm. that point that, that there's nothing more important. It, there's just nothing more. If you're, if you're an American human being, 
there's nothing more important to be involved in than the fight for racial justice. I, I just can't think of a single thing. Wow. Um, wow. So yeah, that's when my family and I decided to sort of unlearn. Just to, That's the, when the unlearning began of everything that we've ever been taught as white people in this country. Um, and, and we're in it. We're in it. We're in it for the long haul. I have a question, twin. <laughs> Can you help me as a black man understand why sometimes the phrase white privilege is so offensive to white people? <laughs> and I'm asking sincerely, like I'm asking you as my friend to educate me. Yeah. I want to learn from another lens. Why does that word offend and anger so many white people? So I think a couple of reasons. First of all, I think it's ignorance about what the term means. I think a lot of white people think white privilege means that if I'm white, I haven't suffered. Mm. If I'm white, I haven't suffered. And what it really means is you haven't suffered just because you're white, mm. right? Just yeah. the color of your skin has not made your life more difficult. It doesn't mean that you have never suffered if you're white. It means that you've never suffered because you're white, right? Wow, that's so good. Jeez, that's good. So there's just that little, you know, and, but then the, the deeper thing is that, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, this in religion, right? It's like when you've been taught one way, you've been taught to look at the world in one way. And we, as white people were taught that everything's fair. Everything's fine. If, since things are fine for us, everything's fine. This country is based on meritocracy. If you work hard, you get what you should have. And that's just the way it is. And y'all are really it, taught that? Yes, like, absolutely. Really? Yes, yes. And that it, whatever bad happens to people, it's because they haven't done enough. And the country was built on this and this and that. You know, we never learn, we never are taught the the actual history of this country. And so what happens is it's like being taught religion in one specific certain way your whole life, you know, mm. when you're a kid. And then you go outside of your house and people start saying things to you and you're like, wait, that doesn't jive with everything I've ever been taught. Wow. And it scares the crap out of you because it feels like somebody, you know, that game, that Jenga game where like, it feels like somebody's pulling out one block and that the whole <laughs> yeah, thing's yeah. going to fall. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so people are so scared that if I actually entertain this idea of white privilege, that it's a Jenga block that then will crush my entire worldview. And I will have to start over knowing nothing, which is exactly what happens. <laughs> that is so, that is so good. That is so good. And I want to commend you just because your explanation of it was something that even people outside of your race can tangibly get it. It's like, that makes sense, is that the lens as a child that you're continued to talk, even if it was revisionist history, mm -hmm. it was still the history that was given to you. So it's the history that you respond to. And so we had a summer of 2020 where we saw one America in the streets and then we have a winner this past January of 2021 that revealed another. Yep. Is I want to know from your twin, are we officially a divided country? And is America turning into a failed experiment of democracy? <laughs> God. Well, we don't know yet because we are an experiment. But I'll tell you this. We're a family, okay? And families, what I know about families is when there is a deep secret in the family that nobody is talking about and that some people know about in the family and some people don't, and there's this like sickness that is this family secret, it can look like everything's okay, mm. right? But it's rotting underneath. Mm. Oh, that's so good. 
And then there's this this moment in the family where the secret comes out and it looks like the family is breaking apart, okay? And and, and the family is breaking apart. Like the, the, the old way of being where we were pretending and people were sick in private is ending. But we're entering this new place where the secret is out. And so there is hope for the first time. I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know that the secret, the rotten secret, and and listen, it's only been a secret, a a, a purposefully ignored secret in the white community. Wow. So I'm speaking for our community, but it's out. And people I know who have never spoken about race before are finally speaking. Wow. Finally listening. So I don't know what will happen next, but I do have hope for the first time because the rotting, the the kind of rotting that only happens in the dark, there is some light on it for the first time. So so we will see. We will see how many people are brave enough to pull the Jenga thing out, let the whole thing crumble and rebuild with, with equality, with justice, with maybe a little less for me and a little more for them, maybe a little bit less fear and a little bit more curiosity, maybe maybe justice. I don't know. We'll see what's next. And you know what my hope is in Glennon, what I'm so excited about what you're saying is that it feels like this movement and this moment is being led by women. Mm. Because, see, you know, I'm adopted by a 64-year-old woman. Mm. I was a four-year-old kid adopted by the 64-year-old lady, and I and I saw the power of how this older lady could go to the good— Yo, Glenna, she would go to the Goodwill mm. and put together a three-piece Easter mm. suit. Now, mind you, the suit wasn't put together at the Goodwill, but she could find the jacket and the vest and the pants and the butterfly collar and the bell oh, bottom, God you know, and oh. and I would go into Easter Sunday looking like Baby Shaft, you know, <laughs> and she could, you know, oh, God, I as love I love, it. as I love the fact that it's being led by women, talk to me for a minute about this incredible organization that you are able to spearhead that has this focus on giving to women and empowering women and, and helping women because I am a product. Glennon, of a powerful old black woman. Mm, And I want to know, tell me about your organization. Yeah, well, it's called Together Rising. It started just because I am a person who survived because of the kindness of strangers, really. Like people who took care of me when I was getting sober, who had no business taking care of me. And I've understood since then that life is about giving what you can when you can. And then when you're in need, accepting um, what is given to you, that it's not that we are, uh, we are not divided into givers and receivers. We are just, our lives are divided into seasons and some of them we give and some of them we receive, right? And it's just a back and forth our whole lives. So it's uh, an organization that exists to meet women and children where they are and give them what they need. Because we know when we give to women, uh, communities rise, families rise, nations rise. It's, you want to invest in anything that's foolproof. It's it's women, yes. right? So yes. And then, and then I realized somewhere along the line, Kirk, I was um, helping so much. We were just working so hard and we kept thinking, why are so many people struggling when they're working so hard? Like what, why are so many people struggling? And then I read this quote from Desmond Tutu and it said, you can only pull people out of the river for so long until you decide to look upriver and find out who's pushing them in. Oh my God. Oh, Kurt. Jeez. That's when I switched Chills. from philanthropist to activist. That's when I realized, Chills. oh, wherever there's great suffering, there's always great profit, right? Chills, chills. There are, I got chills. There are people in power. There are institutions who are profiting off 
of people's suffering. That's why it happens. It's not of God. It's of power. Right. Oh man. And 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 then so Kirk, years ago we started doing our research. We were just in in communities. Who's helping you? Like who's who are the helpers? Who are the people on the ground that are doing the effective work that you trust in community after community? And you will not be surprised to find out that all of the organizations who um, have been on the ground in the fight for people forever in communities all over this country are mostly led by women, and of those women are mostly led by women of color. Wow. It's not a surprise because these are the people who've been in the fight for justice since the beginning, right? So that's when I figured out, oh, I'm a bridge. Like, I don't know what these communities need. I know what I don't know. And I know that I'm good at raising money. I know that people will give me their money. And so my job is to get the money and get the funds to these organizations on the ground all over the country that these communities trust and know and who are often led by women of color. So who are not given the funds that they need and deserve. So that's, you know, we're first responders, families on the ground, and then we are um, a bridge to to give the warriors in these communities the resources that they need to keep the fight up. When we get back, I ask Lennon about the moment when God became real for her. More good words after the break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Miss Glennon Doyle, my last question for you is, what will be the moment for you that you will never forget? Maybe it was the eight-year-old girl. Maybe it was the bathroom floor moment. Maybe it was when you were hospitalized, Mm -hmm. or maybe it was the moment of divorce. And I don't know, but there are so many pivotal moments that are just life-changing that are movies within themselves. (laughs) What moment in your life can you help me and tell me about when you first realized that God was real? Oh, God. Oh, that's so beautiful. I have to tell you, the older I get, the more I'm not sure about the big, huge, sweeping moments. I know right now that, you know, when my babies, I call them babies, they're 18, 14, and 12. Um, But when they walk down the stairs in the morning and their little cranky faces are still waking up and I think, oh my God, those are my kids. 
I still am freaked out by it, Kirk. Like I should not have ever been, I mean, I didn't even think I'd make it to 30, right? Wow. And, and wow. here I am with these grown children who, you know, by all accounts, I mean, we sure as hell are a perfect family, but they're relatively upstanding citizens, right? Like, like, <laughs> we're, we're kind of humaning well over here-ish. <laughs> You know, when I look at, you know, when I'm at my kid's soccer game, I'll be at another one tonight and I am sitting in the stands and it's me and my little girl and we're watching my teenage daughter play soccer and my ex-husband and my wife are sitting together laughing, making notes about Tish on the field, um, best friends. It's just, I'm like, whoa, that is only God. That is only God, right? Just all the little moments that my family, because um, because we're a weird family, we're different. We're we're not you know like a family um, that we're told the way a family is supposed to look. Um, and so with all of our differentness and uniqueness and and beauty, it's it can only be God in in my family. I think is where I see God the most. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you how much I've enjoyed talking to a pint-sized dynamo that refuses to stay in the baby pool, but mm. has spent most of her life at the deep end. Mm. Um, a story is incredible, and I'm humbled and honored that she would even allow me to have a chance to break bread. And because she did, I have now finally found my twin. Oh, finally. <laughs> Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, show some love for the Glennon Doyle. Thank you, Kirk. I just loved every minute of this. I just felt like it was magic. Wow. Thank you so much. Can you imagine how your life would be if everyone around you continued to create an atmosphere of judging you? They judge your walk, they judge your talk, what you wear, what you say, and they never get a chance to really fully understand the true you. And even the true you is never good enough for them. And then you have to assimilate and conform to be accepted by the community in the room that has made a decision that it is their job to judge you. Or how beautiful would it be that we were in a room full of people that were busy being committed to fixing the things about themselves. Those areas in their lives that are broken, that are not mature, that need to be even more developed. Can you imagine what kind of atmosphere that room would be if everyone was committed to being a better them while you work on being a better you? But that's what judgment does. What it does is that it causes us to have the speck in our eye. And so we never see the issues about us that are wrong because we're so busy being committed to trying to fix and change someone else. Because you know why? It is easier to spend time accusing you of being a bad you than it is the work and investment it takes in being a better me. It is the time that I have to put in looking at my character, the things that I say wrong and do wrong, and the personal work that it takes to be a better person is so difficult that it's easier for me to spend the rest of my life judging you. America, have we become that country that we're so busy full of hate and judgment, even when we hide behind scriptures and when we hide behind dogma and these religious ideologies that don't even allow us to allow God to get the speck out of our eye so that we can see our brother or sister better. 
We will never agree on everything. We will have different views, different thoughts, different convictions. But the truth is, is that in our species, if we don't begin to see that John 3.16 does not have any amendments, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And while we're so busy focusing on the areas that we think are more important to Jesus, I need to make sure that my life is becoming much more and more like him. To have a strong, enduring faith like we found out from my twin, Glennon, making sure that even in our struggles that we continue to support one another because everybody got something. And how beautiful would it be to not preach Jesus, but to live Jesus? That we allow people to live a life that is unashamed and, and to be able to see that when we help each other come up, we come up ourselves. And that as we heal, we reveal these things that need to change in us that keep us sick. This is a country that we all have to live in together. And the way that we do that is through the lens of love. Loving people that don't look like us. Loving people that think different than us. Loving people that live different than us. Loving people the way that God loves you every day. And when you need him the most, he is always there. Will I preach him or will I be an extension of him and love my brother, love my sister, whoever they may be? I hope you've enjoyed Glennon Doyle. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation because I'm going to always give you John 3.16. That's who I am. I'm a child of God. And I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Good Words with Kirk Franklin. Thank y'all so much for listening to Good Words with Kirk Franklin. If you'd like to support the show, please rate us and leave a review on your podcast app. Good Words with Kirk Franklin is a collaboration between For Your Soul Entertainment, Sony Music, Provident Entertainment, and Spoke Media. We're produced by Trey Jones and Cody Hoffmachel with help from Alicia Force and John Yale Kastner. Our executive producer is Keisha T.K. Dutess with Aaliyah Tabakolian and Keith Reynolds. This episode was mixed by Will Sharp. The rest of our team is Reese Brooks and Michael Havens from For Your Soul, Ron Hill and Phil Thornton from Provident Entertainment. And a very special thank you to the Sony Podcast team. Let's go. Let's go.